Let's pray together again. Father God, we gather here because we truly believe that you're still alive. We believe that you still love us. We believe that you have mercy for us and that we only know and believe the very beginnings. We ask that today that your word would speak. We ask that your word would heal. We ask that we would would give you space in us. Thanks. That you're bigger, you're more vast, you're more powerful, you're more majestic than we ever could imagine. And so in this space, in this time, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your voice that's speaking. In your name, amen. Good morning, everybody. I have some friends who are going to pass out some beans because you need some beans today. So take some beans and just put them in your hand like that, okay? And hold on to them for a little little while, and I'll tell you what to do with them. We are in this series called Recall, and in this series, we have been uh, looking back in our life, right? We've been looking back at the God of love. We looked back at the God of mercy. We looked back at the God of the living last week. This week, we're looking at the God of peace. And I'll be honest, when we started prepping for this week, I was thinking God of peace like in my life, in in my like little world, like on Second Street, meaning like God of who makes my kids go to sleep with NyQuil so that I can have a couple minutes (laughs) kind of peace. You know what I'm talking about? The God of really good coffee kind of peace. And as I read the text, I was super convicted. And it actually took me like two days to just do on this text because it's much bigger. And so often with God, I play really, 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 really small. And this God of peace that we're looking back on today is bigger than me. He's bigger than you. He's bigger than our individual circumstances. This is the God of peace who is like peace on earth kind of peace, okay? And I am, I am no theologian at all, but every bit of my pastor heart was woken up this week as we looked at this. And so um, I believe that God speaks through his word. I don't think I'm the only one. I believe that he speaks real powerfully. And so I, I, he'll give me some words, but I'm even just praying that the words that are in this book come alive for us. Not, not just my words, but that, that the reality of Christ becomes even more real in our lives as we look at this. And so we're in, in Ephesians 2, and we're starting off in verse 11. And um, if you have beans, keep holding your beans. If you don't have them yet, you're getting them, okay? Let's look, start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands. Fun verse, right? Anytime those words come up, we get nervous about what the pastor is going to say. What this is, what we're looking at right here is this us versus them thing that is from like the very beginning of Genesis. We see us versus them. 
And we see it right here. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus who are all gathered in one room. And he's calling out that we can be gathered in one room but have us versus them. And that's what's going on in this church. There's this distinction that's done by, by human hands. There's the majority culture called the uncircumcised. But I don't know if you know that. Nobody ever calls themselves that. That's not really a title like, hi, I'm Matt, the uncircumcised. Like, that, we don't really do that. <laughs> and they didn't even call themselves Gentiles. That was a term that the, the Jewish people, who were in the minority at the time, the, the Jewish people called everybody else Gentiles. It's like sometimes, I don't know if you guys know this, sometimes Christians call people who are not Christians unbelievers, as if they don't believe in anything. Nobody really says, hey, I'm Matt, I'm an unbeliever. I probably have some belief system, at least like I believe the ground is under my feet. Like there's something that I believe, but sometimes we just label each other and we're sloppy with language, right? That's not just us. That goes back to the Bible. And Paul is pointing out that there is this us versus them. He's writing about this challenge of us versus them. And it's especially a challenge because there's a bunch of them who entered the church. There's a bunch of Gentiles who entered the church. There's a bunch of, really they were, they were Romans, which was the major powerful culture at the time. They, they like went everywhere like they belonged, including into the church. And that was a tension because, well, Jesus was not Roman. He was Jewish. There was like some ownership there, like, hey, he's our guy. The, the Jewish people who now believed in Jesus and called themselves Christians or a part of the way, they were this super minority that were being pushed and shoved into tiny little corners. And they were like, but Jesus is our guy. And then majority culture, these Romans are sneaking in to our turf to even take our Jesus. And there was huge tension in the church about us versus them. And so Paul writes to the Gentiles to the majority culture. He says, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Okay, these words are being spoken to majority culture. Okay, this is back in Bible times, but like my mind goes to like right now, right? I'm a, I don't know if you know this, I'm a white guy. Uh, I was born that way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I have often just walked in places and thought I belonged. Like most often, if I am wearing shoes and a shirt, I, I think that I belong in that room. That's just what life taught me. And here's what's wild. I've done some, I've been able to do some work in other countries. And I've even gone into other countries as if I belong. I've been extremely the minority. I'm there on a passport and a visa that I didn't even get to the airport, and I just assumed they would give it to me because there was enough U.S. dollars in my pocket. And I just, I have lived in a way that I think that I belong in places because my life has taught me that. I'm a white male who always wears shoes and always wears a shirt. I get service. That's just been my life and really until the last three four five years I, I didn't even think about it and this is the Romans 
This is the Gentiles. If they wore sandals and a toga, they got to go there. That was their thing. They belonged everywhere. And to that group, to majority culture at the time, Paul says these words that had to be shocking to identify with. He said that they were excluded, that they were foreigners, that they were without hope, that they were without God. No way. I'm not excluded. I'm not a foreigner. I'm not without hope. I'm not without God. Somehow, if you have lived in majority culture, you think privilege even opens the door to faith. It doesn't. I don't belong in faith because of my skin and my gender. That doesn't earn me anything with Christ. And honestly, a lot of us need to hear that and wrestle with that because we just assume, well, my grandma, she read her Bible, so I'm good. This isn't just a majority culture. This is all people, but this is like, this is something that we need to be talking about. This is something that we need to recognize. Privilege doesn't open the door to Jesus. He doesn't see that. And if anything... He seems to always side with people who are forgotten or people who are overlooked or people who are persecuted. See, when you look at the keys of the kingdom, they were not given to the Roman male. They were given to the minority. Jesus looks at Peter and says, the keys of the kingdom are yours. Whatever you loose on this earth will be loose, and whatever you lock will be locked. He gives the keys to the kingdom to not only a Jewish man, but a Jewish man who followed this rabbi named Jesus in this tiny little sect called the Way that everybody thought was crazy. And he said, hey, the keys to the kingdom of God are yours. To this tiny little minority. And if we watch... Luke through Acts, if this week, if you read those as one story, part one and part two, Luke and Acts, if you read through them, you'll see that the church is trying to discover what that looks like. Peter's given this giant role and like, okay, what, what does this look like? We, we see that this proclamation of Jesus being king is what the church is built on. What, what does that look like and what rules can we add to that and how is that shaped? And really the big question as you read through the middle of Acts is how will the minority group use the power and control that Jesus gave them? Because that's what this is. You look at Acts 10, and Peter goes into Cornelius' house. Cornelius is Roman. He's a powerful man. He's a part of the army. He's had all power all the time, and he needs Peter to come and explain to him who Jesus is. And you watch Acts 11 through Acts 15. The church wrestles with, what is this going to look like now that Gentiles, now that majority is part of our church? What is it going to look like now that our faith looks broader than we thought? What what rules are we going to follow? It's, it's like adding boundaries to something completely uncontrollable. That's what the church is trying to do here. And one of the questions that we have to acknowledge is that the early church is asking, how do we get back at the Gentiles a little bit? How do we make it hard? How do we, how do we learn to trust them? Because we've never trusted them before. How, how do we get security for ourselves. And you see different people in the early church are fighting for different rules and regulations to govern these 
Gentiles, this majority culture, these people who have had privilege, they're saying, well, we need to add these things. We need to expect these things. Or is really the foundation of faith just proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? So our culture, like all cultures before, it hands power to the majority. Our culture right now hands power to people like me. And this is what we've been afraid of. This is what sparked up the last couple weeks, right? And I'll be honest, people like me, most often, we've used that power to sin. In the the video, Kat talks about Isaiah 6. I was reading through the same thing this week. And and I got kind of weepy, which is not shocking to you, but I got kind of weepy when uh, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And if you resemble me, you guys, we have done harm to our brothers and our sisters. We've hurt one another. We've brought about division, some of it naive and stupid, some of it intentional. And, and I've, I've had conversations with myself, with others where we're like, but I didn't do this and I didn't do this. Yeah, but I benefited from it, Gus. I've benefited from this system. I've benefited from the way that things are. My life has been way, way easier because it's been way harder on my brothers and sisters. I'm a man of unclean lips among the people of unclean lips. The beauty is the story doesn't end there. God touches Isaiah's repentance and begins to heal the land. I believe that this is what God is doing in our midst. When we walk into this room, a lot walks in with us. I was trying to think of what this has become, what this church has become this collection of people who gather on Sundays and other times. What is it? And I kept thinking of the word sanctuary. This is to be a place of safety, of rest, of refuge, where everyone can come in and and you're safe in one place. But really, like a lot comes with us, right? We carry a lot with us, a lot of fears, anxieties, situations that are absolutely real, ramifications of sitting together, things we've lost, things we've gained, all of that comes in. And so if this is really going to be a sanctuary, a place where we find rest, where we find peace, then healing has to happen. Healing has to happen in me, in you, but it has to happen between me and you. Real peace has to enter here. I was reading this book by a man named Dr. John Perkins, uh, and he was talking about the early black church in the United States. And he was talking about after slavery and after finally, like, slave masters stopped appointing white pastors to pastor these minority churches and, and leaders were raised up within the church. He talked about the power and safety and everything that was found on on Sunday mornings that bled into Sunday afternoons and bled into Sunday nights. 
And a lot of you know the story, but truthfully, a lot of us don't either. Part of the reason that the church was such an anchor in the lives of people was, of course, because it's Jesus. And as soon as we get a realistic picture of who Jesus is, we can't get enough of it. There's something else that was happening. That was the sanctuary. That was the one place that was safe. That was the one place where someone was acknowledged as human as made in God's image. That was the place for leadership development. That was the place to learn to read and write and express yourself and have music and life and food and celebration. That's the one place. And so as I was reading this, I was so broken that Monday through Saturday, it was as if being in another world where you were seen as other and then escaping back to that safe sanctuary on Sunday. And I'm reading this and I'm reflecting to last year where I talked to some of you And the realistic pain of doing this church is some of that feeling of sanctuary is gone. I took that. It could feel like that. I feel like it's no longer the same safety that it was. And we have to acknowledge that. That's just true. We're believing in a bigger healing and a bigger picture of who Jesus is. We're believing that this is all for something, that it's worthwhile, but I admit that that is lost. When you come in and worship with people who can't clap, it's different. (laughs) It's different. That's just true. I think we felt this after the week of when Philando Castillo was killed, right? When we gathered to worship, I felt like it was so brave of many of you to come in because I know that there was racial pain. I know that there were, when you looked out, some of us in, in white skin resembled the very thing that made you angry. And a few of you beautifully expressed that to me. But you came and believed that God was at work and that there's healing. Last week, when we gathered, I don't think I'll forget last week's service. As we gathered and there was tension in the air, but here's what's beautiful. There was tension in the air, and I felt like as we worshiped, we laid it on the altar before God and said, you are the one who heals this. You are the one who heals this, and you called us together, so we're going to learn to experience you together in this place. It's something beautiful. I truthfully believe that the power to reconcile is in the hands of the silenced, the marginalized, the minorities in any culture. I learned more about Jesus being in Ethiopia with people who don't know where their meal is coming from because their faith looks different than mine. I pray for daily bread because my grandmother told me to. They pray for daily bread because if they don't pray, they don't know where it comes from. It's vastly different. I'll never forget, one, two summers ago, I was preaching on, uh, on mercy, like a, a couple weeks ago, and, and I first preached at, at the avenue, and we talked about mercy, and it was kind of a theological construct, and, and we walked through the theological idea of mercy, why you need it, and eventually towards some application, and then I went and spoke at Soul Center, and I said, why do we need God's mercy, and about 10 of you spoke back and told me exactly why you needed God's mercy, and what it looked like in your life. I remember that somebody had shouted back, it's the reason that I'm awake this morning is because God gave me his mercy. This is why we belong together. 
In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Together, that's who we're becoming. But truthfully, a lot of the power of finding peace is is not in my hands. It's not in the people who live in white skin's hands. We have our part to play. But we need you to be gracious to us. Those of you who live in, in beautifully darker shades, we need to learn from you and listen to you. And we need to find healing as we go near one another. But the challenge in this text is it's not about black and white. In this text, we're all Gentiles. Unless your mother's a Jew, we are all Gentiles. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's all of us, folks. We weren't born into into Jewish blood. And we were far from him. And we were brought near because of Jesus, not because of privilege or struggle or intelligence or experience. None of those things bring us near. It is just the blood of Jesus. He is our peace. He is our shalom. He is the place where we find refuge, completeness, and harmony. This moment where, like, all is right in the world is in him. And so in the context of our culture right now, listen to these words. For he himself is our peace. He made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We talk of walls and barriers, and we've, we've built them ourselves between one another, right? All of that is torn down. Jesus has torn all of it down. None of it stands. And he made us one. But how? He didn't do it because that was our aim. He didn't do it because we're kind. He didn't do it because we're sacrificial or benevolent people. He didn't do it because we're doing something trendy or progressive. He didn't do it because the city of Louisville needs something to look at. None of those things. He did it. All of those things will fail, but he did it on the blood of Jesus. He didn't do it because of policy or perfect preaching or worship style or book studies. None of those things will unite us. Nothing else will unite us except the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus. Verse 15 and 16, he says, His purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We are one humanity. We see all these differences. Jamal and I have talked about it. We're really not that different. The biggest difference between Jamal and I is I have hair and I'm northern. That's it. He's southern. I eat potatoes with everything, 
eat at his house. It tastes better. <laughs> the biggest difference is once we get past so, some, some things that our culture loves to celebrate and loves to kick up as barriers and walls is that I grew up in a colder climate. And that's about it. We are one in humanity. Literally, because Jesus went to the cross, we are one. But on the cross, what is it that Paul says Jesus put to death? Because I think this is the key to this entire passage. What is it that is put to death? It's not your sin at this point. Yes, it is your sin. But what specifically? It is our hostility. What is put to death is our hostility. Some of us carry around so much. We're so limited. We have this deep mistrust of people. We have pride. We don't want anyone to think we don't know something or, or we don't want someone to teach us. We, we get so nervous about so many things. There are misunderstandings. In this room alone, there's this need to be seen correctly, this image protection. We want to get even and we don't trust God for justice and, and we want mercy, but we don't want to extend all of this stuff is a bunch of hostility we carry around, and in the end, it's not worth a hill of beans. You know that phrase? My dad used to say this. He would say, it's not worth a hill of beans. I never knew what it meant, so I Googled it. <laughs> it means compared to something else, it's worth nothing. And we all sit around with a baby hill of beans in our hands. Everywhere that we go. And then we say, God, give me your mercy, give me your grace, give me your love. And there is no room for it, guys. Where am I going to put it? If he, if he intends to shower out his mercy and his love and lather compassion on me, how am I even going to hold on? I've got all this hostility I'm holding. There's nowhere to put it. And so on the cross, as it comes to being one, he says the thing is, he has put to death your hostility, so it is time to let it go. And then we can receive who he is, and we can receive what he has for us. And so every single week, we gather at the table, right? Every week we gather to receive the bread and receive the cup to remember that his sacrifice was paid, but I don't think there's room in us because we're afraid. And I don't think we'll ever know his peace or we'll ever become one if we've just got hands full of hostility. And so you have an opportunity this morning. We have, we have some young ones who are going to serve communion to us on both sides. Because honestly, I think we can learn some things from the older generation. I think we can learn some things from the younger generation. And they seem to love each other outside of creed and color. And so they're going to serve us communion. But we're going to gather at one place to let go of our hostility. And just pretend this is his feet, pretend this is the altar. Really, it's a blue plastic bowl, but pretend it's whatever you want it to pretend it is and let go of your hostility. You might need to name it. And don't let go until you mean to let go. And Jamel's going to be over here to pray with you because some of us, honest, you need to pray about it. You need to release it. I'll be over here to pray with anybody over here. We need to actually let this go. But whatever you're holding on to, that you can embrace what God has for you, you will not know peace until you let go. 
If you need his justice, trust him with justice. He's big enough. He's good enough. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. I'll listen to you. I'll pray with you. But let it go and let him be God. We need Jesus. And we dream of being one, but it's all talk until we let him do his work in us. And it's all talk until we let go and receive his peace. And so I want to invite you as you're ready to experience this verse in verse 17. It says, he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. And whichever one describes you, this peace is not outside of your reach if you'll just open your hands. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're big, you're powerful, and what you put on that cross is much more than I ever realized. And there's so much that we are to trust you for that instead we hold on to and it's making us sick. But in light of you, it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing compared to you. So in this moment, would you bring real healing? Would you bring real deliverance? Would you allow us to be free from the things that we carry? And would you bring peace that we might finally be one? In your name, amen.